All right, grab a Bible and find the Gospel of Mark. Second book in the New Testament. One of our high school students had a project recently and um, had to interview somebody that they, somebody that was in the profession that they thought they might be interested in. And uh, this student has some interest in ministry and, and preaching or missions. And so he came to interview me. And one of the things he asked me was, what do you do all day? And uh, he, didn't ask it, he didn't ask it in an ugly way. He just wanted to know, what do you do all day? And uh, I said, well, most of the day, Corey and I sit around and watch YouTube videos of people falling. And then uh, we make sure that we're ready for Sunday. And that's about it. That's what the job amounts to. And uh, I didn't tell him that one of the things we do is very serious research, like the research I did this last week, when I got online to discover what are the greatest action movies of all time. And you don't have to look that up and compile all your own lists and compare lists, because I have found the top ten for you. And they're not sci-fi movies. So Corey's in here tonight, and I'll just tell you, Star Wars is not on this list. You don't need to throw anything at me. Star Wars is sci-fi. It's a whole other genre. Okay, we're just talking action movies. So I have found them. This is the authoritative, definitive list of the ten greatest action movies of all time. Okay, number one, Indiana Jones fans, anybody? Okay, you're relieved to see that one on there. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Rambo. Can I make a confession to you? I have never seen Rambo, any of the Rambo movies. Monty's going to throw something at me now. Never seen a Rambo movie. I've seen all the Rocky movies. I'm excited to see the new Rocky movie, Creed. It's coming out Thanksgiving, so I'm going to go see it over Thanksgiving with my dad and Amarillo, but there you go. Lethal Weapon, Mel Gibson, Danny Glover. By the way, I'm not endorsing any of these movies. I'm just telling you, these are the greatest, okay? You don't have to like them or watch them, but... Here you go. Lethal Weapon, Die Hard. These are in no particular order. I just kind of mixed them up, but on most of the lists I looked at, Die Hard was the number one greatest of all time, top of the list, the classic action movie. So there you go. Die Hard makes a cut. T2, Judgment Day. Any fans? A few? A few. Okay. Point Break. Have you seen this movie? How many of you have seen this movie? It was on last night. Did you watch it? I was really surprised that this movie made the list. I've seen it, and if you haven't seen it, it's about uh, surfing bank robbers, pretty much. And it's really a weird movie, and every list that I looked on said Point Break is on the list. So there you go. Point Break makes the cut. Bad Boys, Martin Lawrence and Will Smith, a cop movie. Lots of things blow up. Lots of guys get shot. The Matrix, this one you're kind of eh, sci-fi, you're kind of bending the, the genres there, but Matrix has probably got to be up there somewhere. Born Ultimatum, Born series. Got some amens for the Born series. That's impressive. And last but not least, the classic Top Gun action movies. So here's the thing. Yeah, some of you are singing the Top Gun songs right now. You're humming along. <laughs> if the author of the Gospel of Mark could come into the future or could fast forward to the 2,000 years ahead and you could say to him, what kind of movie would you like to go see? Romantic comedy, 
sci-fi, chick flick. You give him all the options, a western. Most scholars would tell you he would pick an action movie because his gospel is cram-packed full of action. That's one of the things that makes it unique. And so we're going to talk about Mark tonight and all of the action that happens in this book. I told you last week, as we just talked about the Gospels, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four canonical Gospels. I know that's a word you don't use in everyday life, but uh, the word there, canon, means in the original languages, means a rule or a standard. And so when you talk about the canon, you're talking about the books that are included in the Bible. And last week, we're not going to rehash this every week we look at the Gospels, but last week we talked a little bit about all these other Gospels, and I put a list up of Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Mary, all these other books that sometimes you hear people say, oh, you're missing one, you're missing a few. And we talked about, you're not missing any. You have the four Gospels that God wants you to have. The others are a bunch of phony baloney pretenders. Okay? You have the ones that belong there, and they're called the four canonical Gospels. We also talked about Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three are the synoptic Gospels. John just writes differently. He doesn't follow the same uh, pattern that the other Gospel writers follow and uh, includes a lot of different material. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels. And we talked about that word synoptic, that it means to see with or to see together. And the idea is that as they look at the life of Jesus, those three guys see it together. And they include a lot of the exact same stories. Here's a graph I showed you last week. There's a lot of information up there. And we're not going to break it down tonight. But I just want you to notice, okay, in the middle, there's something called the triple tradition. Those are stories about Jesus. And you read the exact same stories, almost word for word, in Mark Luke and Matthew. And when you look at that, you realize 76%, three-fourths of Mark is included in either Matthew or Luke in one of those two. You find it in another spot. And you can see 18% of Mark is in common with only Matthew, and 3% of Mark is in common with only him and Luke. And up there in the very, very top, just kind of interesting, only 3% of the Gospel of Mark is only found in the Gospel of Mark. So when you're doing a study like this and you're looking at books of the Bible and you come to the Gospels, you almost come to Mark and look at that and say, can't we just skip this one? Because we're going to get 97% of it when we talk about Matthew and Luke. What's the 3%? How significant can it be? But one of the things you see in the Gospel of Mark is that 3% is important. But the other things that Matthew and Luke talk about that Mark does not talk about are also important and they help you understand what Mark's unique emphases are and so we're going to dive into Mark okay first question I'll just tell you up front I had a lot of stuff a lot of verses uh, a lot of numbers I wanted to put on your outline tonight to share with you and I just didn't have space on my little page that I give you so as you go you may want to write some of these down you may not want to write some of them down but I'm going to give you quite a few references tonight. Who wrote the gospel according to Mark? Okay, tradition says the author is John Mark. We talked about this last week, that all of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all anonymously written, right? In the actual text, we're never told who wrote the book, unlike when you read Paul's letters, 
and it says who wrote it, or unlike when you uh, look back on Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the other parts of the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, tell you that Moses wrote those books. We don't know that for the Gospels, but tradition says that it was John Mark. Um, just some, some names from history. Uh, the early church father, Papias, says that Mark was Peter's interpreter while Peter was in prison in Rome. Okay, that's not in the Bible anywhere, but a very, very old Christian named Papias wrote a lot of stuff, and one of the things he says in his writings is that Mark, John Mark was with the apostle Peter when he was in prison in Rome and he served as his translator. There's another church father named Irenaeus who says that after Peter died, after he was martyred in Rome, that John Mark wrote down Peter's memory of Jesus' life. Okay, so you understand, you guys are really, really sharp. No one here is under the illusion that John Mark is one of the 12 apostles, right? He is not one of the 12, but he was good buddies, history tells us, with one of the 12, in fact, the leader of the 12, Peter. And tradition in history says that Mark got his information from Peter. Interestingly enough, when you read the Gospel of Mark, the author of this book has a lot to say about Peter. You can say, well, well, isn't that coincidence? Well, maybe it is, maybe it's not. In this gospel, Peter is mentioned 22 times. The next second tier of apostles is James and John, and they're only mentioned nine times. So Peter's mentioned 22 times in the gospel of Mark. And here's what's really interesting, okay? You read Peter's name 22 times. 13 of those times when you read about Peter, he's described doing something stupid <laughs> or saying something stupid, okay? Now, just think with me for a second, right? You're trying to think about who maybe wrote this book. If you're just some guy in the early church and you want to write a gospel and no gospels have been written yet and you're going to write the life of Jesus and you know that there's really two or three big dogs in the church, right? Like big names. You got Paul, the missionary. You got Peter, the leader of the apostles. And you got James, the brother of Jesus. Those guys are described in the New Testament as the pillars of the church, okay? If you're going to write a book about the life of Jesus, would you, on your own, write a book that makes one of the leaders of the church look like a bumbling idiot? Probably not, right? You may not go out of your way to describe how brilliant he is, but you're at least probably going to leave out the stuff that makes him look really stupid, unless, historians say, you're friends with that guy, and you're getting all your information from that guy. And that guy has not learned everything, but he's learned enough to know that he's an idiot. And he's done, and he's said some really stupid things. And he is telling you these stories himself. For example, he's telling you the story about when Jesus said, uh, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up, Mr. Big Bad Leader Peter, and says, well, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, fantastic, Peter. That's really, really good. And then Jesus starts to talk about, I'm going to build my church. And then he starts to talk about, I'm going to suffer and die. And you remember what Peter does? No, you're not. And then do you remember what Jesus says to Peter? He calls him Satan. If you're writing the story and you're trying to promote your church, are you going to tell a story where one of the prime leaders of your church gets called Satan by Jesus? 
Historians say probably not unless that guy told it to you and said, look, I'm an idiot. I'm just dense. I'm slow. I didn't understand. This is what Jesus said. And so people say this is proof. Uh, other examples. You remember the mountain of transfiguration. They're up there and Peter doesn't know what to do or say when he sees Jesus and Elijah and Moses. And so he just says, let's have a camp out. Let's build some tents. And the voice comes from heaven and basically says, you need to quit talking and listen to what Jesus has to say. Doesn't make Peter look good, but it's included in this gospel. Uh, Peter is sleeping, chapter 14, when Jesus is praying. Peter denies Jesus, chapter 14. So all these stories about Peter and about half of them make him look like a fool. So history and common sense say John Mark is the author of this gospel. Now, what do we know about John Mark? Here's where I'm going to give you some references and you can write these down. Some of them we're going to look at, some of them we're not going to look at, okay? First of all, he was part of a prominent Christian family in Jerusalem. Now, this can be tricky because sometimes when you read through the New Testament, you read all these names and you start to wonder, is this the same John as I was reading about here? There's a lot of Johns. There's different marks. There's different guys with different names. Or is this the same guy? Is this a different guy? Um, John was a very common Jewish name, and I haven't crunched the numbers on this, but historians say and assure us that Mark was the most common name in Rome. So this is kind of like just a very basic vanilla name. He has a Jewish name, John, and a Greek name, Mark, like a lot of folks did in this time in this part of the world. But we do know that he's part of a prominent Christian family in Jerusalem. You can jot down Acts 12, 12. Peter gets thrown in prison, and the church really doesn't know what to do, so they go and they have a prayer meeting, and they go to the home of John Mark's mother. That doesn't necessarily prove that he was prominent, but what it does tell you that is in a moment of crisis when the church needed to come together and pray together, they didn't have church buildings yet, you understand that. They said, where can we go to be safe and to pray together? And the person who spoke up was John Mark's mother, or maybe it was John Mark who volunteered his mother's house, but that's where they ended up to pray. So he's part of this well-known family. He was also the cousin of Barnabas. You can read that in Colossians 4.10 cousin to Barnabas. Again saying he's connected in the early church. The church is going to his mom's house for prayer meeting. He's connected to a very important guy. You know the story of Barnabas and selling his land and mission trip with Paul. And that leads us to next thing you need to know about John Mark. This is kind of cool and kind of sad. He was part of the very first mission trip. Awesome. But he quit halfway through. Not so awesome. And take your Bible, hold your spot in Mark, and flip over to Acts 12. We're just going to read this, uh, these few verses here. Acts 12. And look at the very last verse of Acts 12, and then we're going to read into chapter 13. says, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John. And you know now, because I just told you about Colossians 4.10, that John and, excuse me, Barnabas were cousins. John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, uh, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And you can read about the story with Paul and uh, what happens in this sort of power encounter. Jump down to verse 13 and it says this, Paul and his companions set set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Most scholars say the reason he left is that Paul, after this first stop on the mission trip, took over the leadership role. And you notice that before this, for example, in verse 25, it's Barnabas and Saul. And you look up in verse 2 of chapter 13, Barnabas and Saul. And then all of a sudden you get down to verse 13, and it's Paul and his companions. And a lot of scholars say, John Mark got mad that his cousin was no longer running the mission trip. He took his toys, he pouted, and he went home. So he quit in the middle of the trip. And that leads us to this next point here. His desertion was the cause of a split between Paul and Barnabas. Look over at Acts chapter 15. And this is not just boring details. I'm going to show you something cool in a minute. Acts 15 Verse 36 says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, again, you see Paul's the leader here, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. Why would he want to do that? Well, it's his cousin. He wants to take him with him. Paul thought it best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. In other words, Paul says he's a quitter. He's a wimp. I don't want anything to do with him. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers by the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So there's this split. Here's what's cool. Later, John Mark is reconciled to Paul, and the relationship is healed. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, and this is pretty neat. The book of 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul ever wrote. He wrote it while he was on death row. He was in prison in Rome. The prison he was in amounted to a septic tank where they chained prisoners up. Every time it flooded, it filled up with sewage, and prisoners would drown if they weren't physically fit enough. It was just disgusting. And that's where he's at, uh, awaiting execution. And 2 Timothy is his last sort of will and testament. And look what he says in 2 Timothy 4.11. He says, Luke alone is with me. We've been talking about Luke. But he also tells Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you. Why? He's very useful to me for my ministry. At some point, that relationship was healed. And at some point, Paul realized, I need to give this guy a second chance. He was a quitter. He did wimp out. Barnabas and I had a big blow up over it. But at some point, this relationship was restored. 
and he was reconciled to Paul. You can also read about uh, Philemon verse 24, only one chapter in Philemon. So Philemon 124 uh, talks about Mark and Paul and their restored relationship. Now, here is, of all the things I've told you, what I'm about to say might be the most important thing you ever learn about Mark, okay? He may be the streaker of Mark 14. He might be the guy who ran away naked. And look at Mark 14, verse 51. This is Jesus in the garden, and he's being arrested. Mark 14, verse 51 says, A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, and he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And most scholars who study Mark say, there's no reason to put that in the story unless you were the guy who did it. And you look back on it and you say, that was kind of funny. Not funny enough for me to say that I was the one who did that, but it was funny enough for me to include it in the story. It has really no theological significance. It doesn't change anything you know about Jesus. It doesn't change anything really you know about the, the last moments other than that people were deserting him, but we know that from the rest of the gospel accounts. And so most scholars say the author of this gospel put that in there, and he put it in anonymously, talking about himself, and he is the one and only streaker in the Bible. So maybe that was Mark. Here's the outline of the book. It's really, really simple. The first half of the book is all about Jesus' ministry all the way up to chapter 8. And then right in the middle, there's Peter's confession. We've already talked about that. That's where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And then the end of the book, from chapter 8 and a half on, is Jesus' passion. And we're about to start talking about the passion narrative in our study on Luke on Sunday mornings. Passion refers to the last week, couple of weeks of Jesus' life is he's traveling to Jerusalem. He's very, very close. He knows he's about to die. That's the Passion Week. And so the book is pretty simple. Half of it is about his ministry, and half of it is about uh, the very, very end of his life. So you can fill those blanks in, and then I want you to do this out beside that. I just didn't have room to put this in, but it's important. Mark 10.45 is the theme verse of Mark. And look up Mark 10.45, and let's read it. This is when James and John come to Jesus and they want to have seat number one and number two in heaven. And the other ten get mad that they asked that question, probably mad because they didn't get to ask it first. And everybody's fighting and Jesus says to them, look, uh, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, this is in verse 42, they lord it over them. And the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shouldn't be that way among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And here's the theme verse of Mark 10, uh, of the Gospel of Mark. It's verse 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you're coming on Sunday mornings, you just know that's Mark's version of Luke 19.10. It's the one sort of just punch you in the mouth verse that describes everything that happened in Jesus' life. It explains his ministry. Why did he come and why was he serving people? And it explains the Passion Week, the second half of the book. Why was he going to die for people? He came not to be served but to serve others 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's the big theme verse of Mark. Let me give you some characteristics about the book. And I'll give you a few references as we go here and some numbers. Uh, Mark was the first gospel written. Scholars pretty much agree on that. And most scholars say that he wrote this book in the 50s. So if you're just trying to think in your mind, Jesus is born roughly around zero. Not exactly, but roughly around what we call zero. And then he dies on the cross roughly 30 to 33 years later. And then about 20 years go by, and Mark has been traveling with Peter, and he's been traveling with Paul some, and now he sits down and he's writing this book based on what he heard uh, from Peter. You may say, be a good question to ask, if it's the first gospel written, why wouldn't it be the first book of the New Testament? When you put them all in order, right, they didn't get together and do it. We put the books in the order. You can change them, and there's nothing sacred about that. Why wouldn't you put Mark first if he wrote first? And the answer we talked about last week is Matthew's genealogy is the perfect bridge to the Old Testament, where he says this is not a new, different story, but this is a new, additional story to what you've already known. So Matthew just fits, uh, fits well as the first book. Um, Here's an interesting thing about Mark when you think about him being the first gospel written. It's the shortest gospel of the four, but when he tells a story, he uses more words to tell that story than Matthew or Luke. You follow what I'm saying? He doesn't tell as many stories, but when he tells a story, he gives more detail about it and he includes more words about it. And it's almost as if Matthew and Luke have come along and they've read Mark and they've said, oh, I got to include that. But... Matthew and Luke, coincidentally, are almost exactly the size of an ancient scroll. Like, that was the maximum length you could write something without carrying two scrolls. And so when Matthew and Luke are putting all this stuff in their Gospels, what they're doing is they're saying, I don't have room for that. i got to make this a little bit shorter. I'm going to take out this detail, or I'm going to take out this detail. And they sort of edit those stories down. So he's the first Gospel written. It is a Gospel of action gospel of action. There is no Christmas story. He just jumps right in. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When you read that opening verse, you think, okay, now let's talk about the Christmas story. Instead, he just jumps right in to the action, and he talks about John the Baptist. Uh, Mark, in his gospel, he only includes two sermons. Remember, we talked about Matthew. Matthew structures his whole book on sermons. That's the main part of Matthew. Mark only includes two sermons, and he includes 20 miracle stories. He's a typical guy. I don't have time to listen to a sermon. I just need the action. Tell me what he did. Tell me the action. Tell me the exciting parts. That's what he wanted to know. And one of Mark's favorite words was immediately. He loves the word immediately. Look at Mark 1. I'm just going to show you about 10 examples of this in the first two chapters, okay? Mark 1, 10. I'm going to move through these quick. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 20, immediately he called them and they left their brother Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed him. Verse 21, they went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. That's impressive. Not only did he enter the synagogue, but he did it immediately. Get to the point. Verse 23. Immediately in the synagogue. 
there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Verse 29, immediately he left the synagogue. So he was there and he was out pretty quick. Verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. Uh, verse 41, uh, 42, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Jump over to chapter 2, verse 8. Immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned him with themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Verse 12, he rose and immediately he picked up his bed and he went out before them all. On and on and on it goes, all the way through the gospel of Mark. Immediately, immediately, he's going, there's action, he's healing, it's a miracle. Over and over and over, it's just cram-packed full of action. In the middle of all that, I told you there's only two sermons, but more than any other gospel, Mark describes Jesus as a teacher or as a rabbi. He doesn't give us a lot of things that he said compared to the other gospels, but he uses that word more often to describe them. And look what Jesus himself says in Mark 1.37. I wrote the wrong verse down. Thirty-eight. Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. That is why I came out. I came out. The point of my ministry is to preach. And he said that when people were starting to get really excited about his miracles. Right? That's what Mark talks about. Miracles, miracles, miracles. And Jesus says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not here just to do a bunch of neat stuff for folks. I'm here to preach and to teach and to proclaim the good news about the kingdom. So he's described as a teacher. Uh, this is important about Mark. One of the most important things about Mark is that he focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. Okay, write these two numbers down. 661, and then write down the number 242. 661 and 242. There's 661 verses in the Gospel of Mark, okay? When he sat down to write about the life of Jesus, it took him 661 verses. 242 of those are about the last seven days Jesus was on the earth, 40%. So he takes 60% of the book, and he uses that to describe what happened in 30-plus years, and then he takes... 40% of the book, and he talks about only one week. And not only does he focus on the last week of Jesus' life, but he focuses on the cross. That's the next point on your outline. He has a heavy emphasis on the cross. And here's two more numbers you can write down. 242, and then write down the number 128. Because of all of those verses about the last week of Jesus' life, 128 of them are about the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. So 20% of the book is about the cross. Jesus did a lot of things in 30 years on the earth. In fact, the Gospel of John, when we get there, is going to tell us if we wrote a book that included all the things that Jesus did while he was on the earth, the whole world would not be able to contain all the books that we would have to write. He did a lot of stuff. And Mark is saying to us, this is the one thing that really matters. The preaching's important. 
right? He's a teacher. He's a rabbi. The miracles are important. I told, I'm telling you about all these miracles. They're really great. They're exciting. They're cool. There's action. It's fantastic. But the thing you really need to know about more than anything else is the cross. And he spends 20% of the book on the last day of Jesus' life. Here's the last thing about Mark. He, uh, he writes with candor. It's a gospel of candor. And I think Mark would fit in in Odessa. And I think the reason he would fit in Odessa is because he got these stories from Peter. And Peter was kind of a rough guy, right? He's just a blue-collar, average dude. Called it like he sees him. And sometimes he sounds like an idiot. Sound like anybody you know in Odessa? Peter would fit in and Mark would fit in. And sometimes Mark describes things. And when you read it, you think, oh, that's kind of a weird way of putting it. And when Matthew and Luke take those stories, they sort of soften it a little bit. And I'll give you just one example. There's tons of examples, but I'll just give you one for the sake of time. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 12. Mark 1, 12. It says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness... And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Okay? You understand that the word drive there does not mean they got in the F-150 and went out in the middle of nowhere. The idea is that it, the Spirit forced Jesus after his baptism. The Spirit of God forces him to go out into the wilderness. And you read that and you say, that the Spirit pushed him out there? To go, that's kind of a weird way to say it. And when Matthew and Luke talk about this, they say the Spirit led him. Big difference between being led and forced when you're talking about something and describing it. And Mark is just a little bit more blunt, saying, okay, yeah, the Spirit led him out there, but let's not kid ourselves. It's not like Jesus could have said, no, I'm not going out in the wilderness. The Spirit forced him to go out there. And he includes this detail about the wild animals. And you say, what does that mean? He was with the wild animals. Like he had a little Jack Hanna thing going on out in the wilderness and it's kind of a weird thing to think about. And when the other guys tell this story, they don't mention that. We, we don't need to tell that part of the story. He was out there, he was tempted, that's enough. And Mark includes details that sometimes these guys leave out. He says things in just a blunt way. Um, even to the point where sometimes he describes the emotions of Jesus in a way that can be a little bit shocking. In, uh, sometimes in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus really gets frustrated with people. Like sometimes it says Jesus sighed at them. You ever think of Jesus sighing? Sometimes we think of patient Jesus. But Mark says sometimes he just looked at people and went, oh, are you kidding me? Seriously, you're asking this question again? Seriously, you haven't learned anything by now? And when the other guys tell that story, they take that detail off and they don't mention it. And they paint sort of almost a softer picture of Jesus. And Mark is just honest. And it's a gospel of candor. He includes a lot of uh, very blunt details. Okay, Here's the takeaway from the book. And I'm going to give you all kinds of verses here. Lessons from Mark. Lesson number one. The cross results in discipleship, not just decisions. I'll give you some verses to write down here. Write down Mark 8, 31 to 33. 
831 to 33. Write down Mark 9, 30 to 32. Nine thirty to thirty-two, and write down Mark ten thirty-two to thirty-four. Those are the three places in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus, before the Passion Week, Jesus predicts his own death. He talks about the cross, okay, the cross. And in each of those passages, what comes almost immediately next is Jesus explaining. To the guys that he just told, he told them, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. Every time he does that in the Gospel of Mark, he turns around and he says, now this is what it means for you to be a disciple. This is what I'm going to do for you, and then this is what I'm calling you to. Right? I'm not just asking you to believe some facts that I'm going to die for you. Because I'm going to die for you, this is what I'm calling you to do. And we're going to look at the first example of that just so you get the idea. Look at Mark 8. 31. The cross leads to discipleship, not just a decision. Okay, Mark 8, 31. He, that's Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter, here's one of these stories about Peter, right? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. But turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebu rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Okay? This is something that our society needs to sort of wake up to. There's a lot of people in our neck of the woods who if you say, do you believe in Jesus, do you know about Jesus, they're going to say yes. And they may even be able to impress you with some of their Bible knowledge and some facts that they can rattle off. And Jesus died on a cross and he rose from the grave. And they can tell you some of these things about the gospel. What people in our neck of the woods are not very good at understanding in the Bible Belt is that the cross leads to discipleship. We think the cross leads to, I get to go to heaven someday. I pray this prayer. I believe that Jesus did these things. I sort of give this verbal affirmation to the historicity of what Jesus did on the earth. And then I do whatever I want with the rest of my life and I get to go to heaven when I die. What could be better? And the Gospel of Mark is like a backhand to the Bible Belt saying, no, 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 no. He must suffer many things and be rejected. Yes. Mark 10, 45. He came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. However, Jesus said to his disciples and to the crowd, to anyone who, who was in earshot, he said, if anyone wants to come after me, not 
if you want to be really serious, not if you want to be a pastor someday, not if you want to be a professor at a seminary someday. If any person wants to follow me, this is what you've got to do. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That's not advanced Christianity. That's just got the other ones. And Jesus does the exact same thing. Every time he predicts his death, he starts to talk about discipleship. Here's the second thing as a lesson from Mark. The gospel is good news for all nations. The gospel is good news for all nations. Look with me and you can jot down Mark 1.1. 1, 1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's his introduction to the book. This book is about the gospel, the good news. Okay, Jump down to verse 14 and 15 in chapter 1. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. Ah, we've already seen that word. Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So he's preaching the gospel. He's talking about the gospel. And as you read through this book, here's something interesting. You can look at the way Mark writes, and you can read the book. It's only 16 chapters. You'll find all kinds of examples of this. He's writing to people who are not Jews. You know how you know? When he talks about Jewish customs, he explains them. Matthew doesn't do that. He just mentions the Jewish custom. He's writing to Jewish people. He's a Jew. Mark is not writing to Jewish people. So when he talks about something Jewish, he knows they don't know what that is. It'd be like saying, I'm going to write a book for people who don't go to church. If you're going to write in that book for people who don't go to church and you're going to talk about Sunday school, you need to tell them what Sunday school is. They don't know what that is. They don't come here. They have no idea. That's our custom, not their custom. And Mark says, I'm writing to Gentiles. They don't know Jewish customs and history, so I'm going to explain these things to them. When Mark uses Aramaic words, when he puts them on the lips of Jesus, he translates those words. They don't know Aramaic. That's a Jewish thing. Jewish people know Aramaic. So when I use these words, I'm going to translate it for them. And Mark uses a lot of Latin words in his gospel for these non-Jewish uh, non folks who are listening to his gospel, reading his gospel. So he's writing for all the nations. Okay, the last lesson from Mark is this. We need to be prepared to suffer as followers of Jesus. And a lot of Bible scholars look at the gospel of Mark and they call him the gospel of suffering or the passion gospel because almost half the book is about Jesus suffering his last week on earth. And 20% of the book is about Jesus suffering in particular on the last day of his life. And when you think about what we know from Mark in history, he's hanging around with Peter when Peter is suffering on death row. He gets called to Paul's side when Paul is suffering on death row. He's looking around at all his friends all around him and nobody has it easy. Everybody's suffering. Everybody's in prison. Everybody's about to be executed. And he writes this book. And the most important thing he talks about is the suffering of Jesus, which, yes, provides us salvation, and Mark wants us to understand that, but also sets the pattern for what followers of Jesus can expect. As he suffered, we're also going to suffer. So, on that note, here's what we're going to do. We're going to transition into a time of prayer and thinking about missions in particular.
And I want you to look on that outline. You just filled all those notes in. And I just want you to think about those last three lessons from Mark. All right? The cross of Jesus results in discipleship. It should lead to followers of Jesus, not just people who make a decision for Jesus. I hope you see the obvious implication of how that applies to missions. When we send missionaries, we're not sending them out to try to get as many people to repeat some formulaic prayer as possible so they can come home and we can all clap about how many people raised their hand at an evangelistic crusade and made a profession of faith. Hooray for us, we got all these people into heaven. That's not the point of missions. The point of missions is to send people around the world where they don't know about Jesus and don't have access to Jesus to tell them about the cross, about the gospel, what Mark has written about, and then to show them this is what it means to deny everything and follow Jesus. This is how you do it. Be a disciple. The second point here, lessons from Mark. The gospel is good news for all nations. That has obvious implication for missions. This is not just an American thing. It's not just a Jewish thing. The gospel is for all the peoples of the earth. Okay? And then lastly, we must be prepared to suffer as followers of Jesus. I'm going to show you some video clips here in just a second that talk about taking the gospel to those who have never heard and don't have access to it. And one of the things I think sometimes we, in our just American comfort, we forget that those people aren't just standing at the airport or the shore waiting to welcome us to come over there. They're not just sort of dying saying, I just, I just need to hear about this Jesus. Come, I'm ready to hear. A lot of these people who have never heard and have not been reached are unreached because they have zero interest in Jesus. And it's really hard to get to them geographically. And it's really dangerous to talk to them about Jesus once you get there. And if you're going to go to those people and tell them about Jesus and show them what it means to be a disciple, you can just mark it down. You're going to suffer. Period. And you say, man... That doesn't sound fun. I'm glad I'm not called to missions. I'm glad I'm called to stay here. And that's great. But if you're called to stay here, that means you are called to give so that other people can go. And make zero mistake about it. If you stay, you're also called to suffer. So how am I going to suffer in the United States? Well, one way you're called to suffer is to give so sacrificially to missions that you suffer. You don't have to be able to, to not feed your family. You don't have to give so much that you can't pay the bills. But you ought to give so much that you've got to give something up. You make some sacrifice. The people who go make a sacrifice. The people who stay in sin make a sacrifice. So all those lessons from Mark are a perfect tie-in for our end-of-the-year world missions offering. And so i got three clips to show you. And they're all pretty short. And we're just going to watch them back-to-back. Uh, the guy speaking is David Platt. He used to be a pastor in Alabama, and within the last few months, not very long ago, he was asked to serve as the president of the International Mission Board. So he is sort of the head over our mission sending agency as a Southern Baptist church. And this is a sermon he preached, and there's just three little clips, and they talk about the gospel, and they talk about what it's going to take to send missionaries. And so we're going to watch these three clips. It should take about five, six minutes. And then we're going to have a time of prayer. When, when the third clip ends uh, and the screen goes black, I'm not going to get up and say anything. Uh, I'm not going to sort of guide you into what you need to pray. I just want you to pray uh, about missions. 
and in particular pray about our church and our missions giving in November and December as we take our world missions offering. So three videos, then you'll pray, and after a few minutes, I'll close us in prayer. Would be a group of Christians who are passionate about your glory, whether that's in Odessa or the ends of the earth. And we want to be a group of people committed to do what you've called us to do, to be serious about the mission that you've given to us. Father, we pray that you would burden us with the reality of lostness and that you would burden us with the hopelessness of millions upon millions of people who have never heard about Jesus and have zero access. They don't have a missionary. They don't have a Bible. They don't have a church. They have no way to hear about Jesus. Father, I pray that you would call people out from our church to go, to leave home, and to set their face to go to the nations and to share the good news. Father, I pray that you would burden people in this church to give to missions, to give sacrificially and to give generously. Father, as we take this world missions offering, I pray that you would place it upon hearts to give more than people have ever given in the past. To give up comforts and to give up things that, that we don't need so that the good news of Jesus can go to the ends of the earth. And we thank you for the hope that we have that people from every tribe and nation and language and family in the end, we'll be gathered around the throne. Father, until we're there, and as long as we're here, help us to be faithful in missions, in all of us praying, in some of us going, and in the rest of us sending. Father, we acknowledge that all of this is possible because Jesus went to the cross he took the punishment that should have fallen to us. He's given us life. And then he's called us to take this good news to the ends of the earth. Father, we've seen it in the Gospel of Mark. We've heard it from David Platt. And we pray that you would impress it on our hearts tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.